Hello, welcome to Politico, Global Affairs Club operating under BU, uh, where we attempt to engage in intellectual discussion among students in pursuit of greater knowledge of our political and social landscape at BU and within the wider world at large. My name is Zachary Okawa. And my name is Holly Schuler, and we are here today to speak with the Democratic Socialists of America chapter at Boston University, also known as the YDSA at BU. The DSA formed in 1982 after splits from the Socialist Party of America dissolved during the 1970s. They are an organization that, particularly since Bernie Sanders' first presidential campaign in 2016, gained steep prominence against amongst many disillusioned with the alleged stagnation of the Democratic Party in light of various political events and crises that have occurred during the 21st century. They are a national group that has found prominence, particularly with young people, as their national members have recently topped uh, 80,000 members, or I believe actually today I saw numbers that topped 85,000, um, and have been on the rise in the last few months. Uh, but with that out of the way, we want to specifically introduce our BU YDSA uh, members. Uh, but before that, we want to just ask them a quick question. What exactly is democratic socialism? Well, you ask a democratic socialist what democratic socialism is in a group of like 100 people are getting 100 different answers. Um, but to me, um, it kind of boils down to two things. The first is that everyone uh, deserves a basic, uh, a basic uh, standard of living and um, uh, a quality of human decency that is provided by everyone else through a form of empathetic politics um, uh, that uh, unites everyone based off no, no matter their ethnicity. Um, the second part is a greater expansion of control over our economic lives. Um, so we decided a long time ago that democracy was a good way to run a government. And I think it's about time we decide that democracy is a good way to run an economy. Can you elaborate? Oh, sorry. No, I just uh, wanted to say, um, I just wanted to ask, could you exactly elaborate what you mean um, on democracy within the economic sphere? Of course, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a, oh. yeah, Vivian, you take this one. I was actually going to, add to what Anthony was saying about democracy, uh, like in the economic sphere, um, because, you know, uh, one thing about about the democratic socialists of America is that we emphasize, um, you can have a certain like political right, right, but if you aren't actually able to exercise that political right, for example, uh, if you're theoretically allowed to vote, uh, but as of the case with Florida recently in the last uh, election, where felons for the first time were allowed to vote after you know serving their sentences they had to pay exorbitant fees in order to register to vote in the first place so effectively that right isn't yours even though you have it legally um and so in the same way we claim that we live in a democratic society um, where we're able to exercise control over who represents us in the government and yet so many spheres of our lives in, in the day-to-day are not democratically controlled, right? For example, this university is not democratically controlled. Yes, we have student government, right? But student government can't actually, you know, make uh, the people who are in charge of Boston University do anything in the same way that like our elected representatives can actually pass laws to change the policy of the United States government itself, right? Um, most workplaces are not democratically controlled. Uh, your hours are set by your boss, you don't get to vote on when you come to work, you just get a, sh a shift assigned to you and your wages are also set by your boss, right? The workers have no say in how how much they're paid for their work. Uh, it, it doesn't even matter really like how essential their work is to the business, how essential their work is to society. Um, the rates, the, the rate at which they're paid at is, is set by the market, right? Um, and so as democratic socialists, we think that 
this democracy that we see in government uh, doesn't really like mean anything if it's not extended to all spheres of life, including the economic sphere. And to add on to that very quickly, um, a vast, vast minority of the United States owns a, a lion's share of the stock market. And those are the people who elect the shareholders. So every single major corporation is run by a small minority of people that makes the economic decisions that all of us benefit from, or all of us have to, shouldn't say benefit from, that all of us have to live with. It's almost like when um, you're in a room and there's a thermostat on the room and you're cold, but someone's telling you that you can't turn up the heat and you get no consent. And it's uh, expanding democracy into that uh, sphere of our lives through worker control of companies and profit sharing systems, which is was a very popular movement in the 1960s, uh, specifically with the auto workers union, um, could be steps that could bring us to a more egalitarian democratic society. So seemingly from what you're advocating, essentially you're proposing a society in which we just essentially take, you know, our go to the ballot box, for example, and look to extend that into the workplace. So looking to go to, because I, I just want to kind of help people understand and help, you know, myself kind of understand as well, exactly what you guys mean by, you know, because when people hear like you get a vote in the workplace, that just seems like a for very foreign concept, right? Um, it's, it's, it seems like, you know, we're always told that bosses are, you know, necessary. We're always told that you fall, you know, you might hate your boss. You might be an asshole, but he or she, you know, I don't know. <laughs> they, they, whoever, <laughs> they can be an asshole, but, um, you know, you just have to sort of live with that. But so democratic socialism is essentially saying that we want to just extend democracy from the ballot box you know, on election day to the ballot box, like every day where we go to work, right? Is that- is Definitely. That... And it's also, yes, absolutely. That's a main component, but it's also about recognizing that some industries shouldn't be left up to the hands of a few individuals. Um, we look at like city water supplies. That's something that should not be run for profit. When you're looking at things like healthcare, that's something that nobody should be profiting off of somebody else going through the most difficult battle of their lives with cancer. That's so ungodly immoral that I don't think that there's uh, any justifiable reason to allow industries like that to exist and exploit people. And that's all, all it is. People, once you get cancer, you have about two years before you go through your entire life savings. So when the family's going through the worst time in their lives, you're asking them to throw their economic security away. That is completely unreasonable. And it's, it's not something that a decent society should push for. All right. Good to hear. Um, so just to kind of finish off on that point. Um, you were talking about, you know, the, the certain industries. Would you suggest that a nationalization of these industries is what you guys are proposing? Or is it more looking towards local communities and seeing towards, you know, um, you know, the water supply within a certain city should be run by the local municipality? Or is it should it be like national? I just want to kind of understand what you mean by that. Well, DSA has endorsed Medicare for All. We do have a national Medicare for All campaign that's ongoing, and they're going to be launching another phase of their campaign very soon. I don't have the exact date, but they're going to have a webinar coming up. Uh, and so with, with stuff like that, I think with, with stuff like healthcare, I think it makes so much sense for it to be done on like a national level, right? Because with healthcare and health insurance, um, the whole entire idea of health insurance is increasing uh, the bargaining power of the of the clients, right? If you only have one person, um, you know, who's paying for like healthcare, then they don't really have any bargaining power over like the price of the healthcare, 
right? Um, if you have uh, 500 people with an insurance company, sure, your bargaining power increases, but the larger your network, right, then the more power you have to bring prices down. So something like that makes a lot of sense to us to run at the national level. Um, in terms of like utilities, for example, you know, that might be different because of, you know, currently our system is set up in a, like a very localized way. So it might be, it might make more sense for us to build power locally um, through, uh, you know, pushing for public utilities in a certain locality. So I think it really has to be taken on a case-by-case -case basis. Absolutely. And decentralized democracy is a fantastic thing. The closer you are to your representative is absolutely fantastic. And if you have locally elected representatives that are um, fighting for your um, economic interest in certain, uh, in uh, like utility and municipal programs, that's a, that's a great thing. Yeah. Um, sorry, one second. Um, so um, I think Holly wanted to actually uh, jump in with the next question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, so to go on a bit more of a microscopic level, what are the specific aims and mission of the YDSA chapter at Boston University? And that do you guys see yourself as more of an educational focus for the students to learn more about socialism? Or do you see yourselves as an organization with some political ambitions within the university? Well, honestly, I, uh, I'm really happy with the way this uh, organization turned out this semester. We've been highly successful in the age of COVID, and um, we have taken uh, two major priorities. The first one that we did for the uh, majority of the semester so far has been education. We've been having two meetings a week, one being a reading club, and then one being um, just a general meeting where we talk politics. And uh, you know what? On that reading group, it's amazing to see so many people so engaged with texts from the 1880s and the 1840s. It's truly something special. And there's great moments where people who have never read the text before are talking to absolute like Marxist veterans who are like uh, gaining new um, experiences and getting new um, uh, ideological lenses from which to interpret things from the newer uh, readers. But now, um, about two weeks ago, we're very excited um, that we started a uh, campaign here on campus, uh, the Free Laundry for All campaign, a playoff Medicare for All, and we're going to uh, hopefully push the administration to uh, uh, eliminate the uh, laundry cost prices to students. That is a, a cost that should not have to be burdened by the majority of the student body. And uh, we're really excited. We just got a, an article published in the free press about it. Um, there's a Reddit post about it. Anyone go check that out. But uh, we're gaining a lot of support very quickly. And uh, we hope to put, be able to push the administration to reach this. So yeah, we see ourselves as one, as a political education group, but also we're uh, a vanguard for the students' interest. So specifically about, um, before I go into the education, the so the free laundry program is, you know, obviously, so what you're essentially is eliminating all the costs of uh, laundry for all students as included as part of your tuition, I'm assuming. Yeah, that's the plan. I think, I honestly, uh, BU isn't a laundromat. There's no reason for them to be making profit off of us doing our laundry. There's no reason for that. And so we have a couple steps in which we want to do this. Phase one is about building like a, a basically a mass petition um, through flyering and um, email outreach, um, which is already seeming to be extremely effective. Um, the next phase is going to be uh, twofold, taking an alliance with senators and the student government who will help us hopefully eventually pass a resolution uh, that they are... Um, showing that they're supportive of the cause. And um, secondly, we would really hope that the university would do an audit and show 
the student body exactly how much it costs to run these machines. So everyone can see for themselves whether or not they are profiting off of us doing our laundry, which I think would um, be very disappointing to for the student body to learn. Okay, that's um, so it's clear, concise messaging. I, uh, sorry to see from you guys. Uh, but about your reading group and your political groups. So you mentioned uh, a word, uh, sorry, a name there that I think may throw some people off, the M word, or as Marx, as we say. Um, you know, you know, when a lot of kid, kid, I mean, maybe not so much the younger generation. I think there's, we've, there's been proven that a lot of the younger generation uh, isn't so thrown off by that word, but you'll have many Americans who they'll hear Marx, they'll hear uh, I mean, I'm not sure exactly all the people you're reading, but you know, if you mention people from the 1900s, I assume there's Lenin in there. I'm assuming there's you know other figures like that um, that may, people may look at and say, mm, "That's uh, you know, that's 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 th th it's a dirty it's you know it's a dirty concept to learn in American history. It's very um, and so you know, what would you guys say to like that kind of critique of like? Oh, communism or socialism is a dirty word, and like we shouldn't be talking about these kind of things. I would say, uh, I would say, read it. Um, if you're afraid of what Marxism is, I would say read it for yourself and make your own decision, make your own conclusion. Um, I came from a very conservative town on Long Island. Um, I grew up as a libertarian capitalist, and um, I never once questioned those ideologies. And specifically in America, it's very common for you to just grow up in capitalist institutions and then internalize them and think it's the norm and you the, honestly the system just crushes your creativity nobody looks at the world and thinks like if i were to make it from scratch is this how i want to see it nobody thinks like that anymore and everyone's kind of secluded and uh um kind of subjected themselves to thinking that nothing can ever change um so uh marxism specifically i mean what part of Marxism? Are you talking about the labor theory of value? The labor theory of value has been used by economists for an extremely long period of time. All he did was move the labor, the labor theory of value in order to uh, argue for worker ownership and community control of means of production. That isn't hyper extreme. It's, it's what we just said before. Um, so I don't know. Um, in, in regards to the stigma that it's created, um, I recognize the Cold War has uh, greatly poisoned those words, but it's a shame because so much of what America has achieved was specifically because of socialism. Um, if you look at the 1930s, I think this is such an incredible example. Um, the 1930s uh, with the New Deal, so many Americans praise the New Deal programs, but it's so easy to forget that the New Deal programs were only achieved because socialists and leftists got in the street and demanded them. They weren't given to us. Franklin Delano Roosevelt and uh, from one of the richest families in the United States, didn't wake up and decide to do these things. He was demanded to do them by a proletarian movement. And it's important to remember that because if you look at this COVID crisis, um, one of the things that the United States relied on to prop up its economy was unemployment insurance. Well, unemployment insurance was a socialist concept going back to the 1880s and 1870s and never would have existed if it wasn't for uh, socialists in the United States pushing for the government to adopt that policy. So imagine COVID without unemployment insurance. The United States uh, needed a little bit of socialism to get through that. So I'm very glad that those movements were successful. Yeah, and even if you if you aren't like a socialist or if you don't think you would ever like become any sort of like anti-capitalist, I think it's still very important for people to read Marx. I mean, there's a reason that like Marx is taught to basically every, in every sort of like 
uh, undergraduate like intro to humanities course of classes, right? Um, because Marx has a very uh, salient critique of capitalism uh, that, you know, I personally think is correct because I am a socialist. Um, yeah. <laughs> but even if you if, if you aren't a socialist, you should still be reading critiques of the system that we live under, right? To see, is there something better out there? Is this really, you know, the end of history as like Francis Fukuyama or someone like him would put it, right? Is capitalism really like the best that we can do? Or is there something else that's out there? It's almost like, this is a classic example. Richard Wolff is a, is a fairly famous Marxist economist that's going around nowadays. And he was very important for uh, a lot of my friends' radicalization. Um, and uh, one of the things he always says, if, if you want to learn about a family that lives down the street um, uh, and, and one kid says it's like absolutely perfect, it's the best family in the world, and the other kid says these parents are crazy, they're abusive, would you only listen to one kid? Why would you only listen to one kid? No, you get both of their stories. And then you conclude at the end whether or not which one you agree with. Mm -hmm. um, so I, again, I think it's super important. And we don't shut ourselves out from reading um, you know, uh, uh, pro-capitalist literature. I mean, it, it, it was extremely important for my political uh, uh, growth to read F.A. Hayek and Milton Friedman. Um, that was extremely important for me. I didn't agree with it, but it was still highly, uh, highly beneficial for me to see the other side's perspective. Not only to, uh, to learn more, but uh, I'm sorry, not only to bolster my own arguments against it, to learn more and see how the other side kind of thinks a little bit. So what you would say is essentially that, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't let these, you know, dirty words and, you know, associations, you know, because a lot of people, again, to why I think there's a stigmatism as well is because, you know, people have seen the horrors of the, you know, maybe Stalinist regimes, um, you know, regimes of Mao, um, you know, what happened in Cambodia, you know, many people would throw the, throw you know those labels at socialism but i guess what you guys are saying is that you know this these you know firstly you have to look at the ideas but also look at you know you know disaggregate those ideas is that what you guys i think you're trying to say yeah, yeah i think key... so i think so no vivian you go i'm sorry a key thing that a lot of marxists um will agree on is that um when you're trying to sort of like take an anti-capitalist view of the world that you live in, it's very important to consider the material conditions as they are like presently, mm -hmm. right? So socialism today, you know, is going to look very different from the socialism that, you know, Lenin established with the USSR or the socialism that Mao established in China. You know, this is, this is not me saying like, either of those are wholly bad or wholly good. I'm just saying that both of those ideologies and both of those strains of Marxism were created in order to um, respond to a specific set of historical conditions, right? And obviously America today looks very different from uh, Russia in the 1920s or China in the 1940s, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we can you know, learn from these movements, right? We can still read the things that Lenin wrote or Mao wrote um, and sort of see you know, what they were thinking. But of course, you know, we're not going to take the exact same approach that Lenin or Mao took. Oh, definitely not. And democratic socialism, let's make perfectly clear, uh, there's a very famous democratic socialist, Victor Ruther. He was um, uh, pivotal in the formation of the Auto Workers Union over in Flint, Michigan. Uh, and uh, he worked very close with Michael Harrington, who was the founder of the democratic socialist. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, he was the founder of the democratic socialist of America. And um, there's a funny moment when Khrushchev from the USSR uh, visits the United States 
and uh, he gets he, he hears about Victor Ruther. So Victor Ruther actually went to the Soviet Union at one point and organized a labor union against the Soviet government because the workers were being treated poorly. And he was kicked out and he was banned from ever coming to the Soviet Union again. So uh, Khrushchev comes in the United States and he's talking about Victor Ruther and he's like, oh, Victor Ruther, that's the kind of guy we killed in 1917. So trust this when we say democratic socialism is not the ally of uh, Marxist-Leninism. All right, um, so, okay. So what would you say then is, would you say that there's a model then that democratic socialism throughout today, you know, we've heard Bernie Sanders obviously talk about Denmark, Sweden, um, you know, but some critiques of that would say, oh, but those are social democracies and those are just, you know, high taxation systems and they don't necessarily have co-ops or anything like that. Um, so would you say that there's a model today for which you guys want to like, sort of mold, you know, not obviously America is different and it's going to be look different everywhere, but like, is, is there models we can look to to say, look here, it works, you know, and it doesn't. I think it's still extremely pivotal for the United States to establish a functioning social democracy um, with uh, um, a clear guarantee of basic human dignity through the form of Medicare for all, through the form of an expansion of the social security system, the form of raising the minimum wage and all of those things. And I think that the democratic socialist movement right now is to check the um, capitalist power that runs the country and uh, uses the United States government to encourage a more equitable distribution of resources. And I think that is the role of a democratic socialist in our current form right now. If you ask me, is there any model I am astonished and extremely encouraged by the success of the mass movement in Bolivia under Evo Morales. He was strikingly successful, accomplishing uh, many of the goals that we wish to. And um, there, it's hard because the United States is such a large country. It's hard to kind of like, we are the world leader. So it's hard for me to pick like which one is gonna be uh, a model. Um, it's difficult. Like Vivian said before, every country has their own path uh, to socialism. So, um, Vivian, what would you say on that? Yeah. Uh, I do think it's important though, for us to take a very like global perspective. Um, you know, I think a big critique of like social democracies and the way that you see them in, uh, like Nordic countries, for example, is that they're still predicated on the capitalist model of exploitation of the third world. Right. Uh, you know, we wouldn't have the social democracies of Norway, for example, without, you know, the huge oil companies there. Um, and we wouldn't have, you know, like iPhones without all the cobalt mines in Africa. Um, and so I think any sort of uh, socialist program must definitely include liberation of all workers, not just workers in the global north or, you know, workers uh, of a certain, you know, uh, income bracket, right? Um, and re regarding like uh, socialism today in like modern America, uh, DSA does have a sort of like checklist in evaluating, uh, is this a good campaign? Is this a good set of demands, right? Uh, the first is, is it winnable? Um, do we think that we can win this demand? Obviously you want a demand that you can win. Uh, Two, will winning it shift power away from the capitalist class and towards the working class? Um, and I think this is somewhere where, you know, uh, democratic socialists would disagree with liberals 
on uh, certain police reforms, right? There are liberals who advocate for giving more money to police in order to increase anti-bias training. Um, whereas democratic socialists would say, no, we don't want to give money towards the police because the police are not a part of the working class. They police the working class. So instead we should be taking money away from the police budget and putting it into programs that will build the working class, you know, such as education and healthcare. Um, number three is, does it build DSA and our leaders? Uh, does it allow DSA members uh, opportunities to exercise their skills and grow as DSA leaders, of course? Um, and four, is it widely and deeply felt? Is this something that is affecting everyone, right? For example, our laundry campaign affects everyone who lives on campus at Boston University. Unfortunately, during COVID, you know, that's not everyone who goes to Boston University, but a good portion of the student body um, is affected by having to pay, you know, uh, five to twenty dollars for laundry every month. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we chose that campaign. So it sounds as if you guys, you know, it's not that obviously you, there's a certain set of demands you need to meet, obviously, as you said, but it's there's a certain pragmatism involved within your movement about, you know, we need to be realistic about where we are as, you know, uh, in terms of this country is far away, I would say, at this moment from, you know, I mean, it's certainly made huge strides again with the Bernie Sanders campaign. But one of the things we've noted, you know, that has recently been noted is that you know, Joe Biden did win the Democratic primary, and ultimately he did win the presidency. Um, now, many, you know, of the talking heads on, you know, in uh, mainstream media uh, have said, you know, this is more of a return to normalcy. And you're, you're, you're already seeing, you know, um, you know, people hail that this is, you know, um, you know, certain members of the Democratic Party are actually saying that some of their losses on election night were because of the progressives and socialists within the party. Um, now, what would you guys say to that? And also, what would you guys say to the idea of actually working within the Democratic Party, um, since there is that, you know, sort of, you know, you know, many members like AOC have tried have attempted to do this, but there has been that conflict, you know, of the more establishment Democrats like Joe Biden against Bernie Sanders, AOC, and other members of the party. Right. I'm gonna. I you, you asked a lot there, so I'm I'm gonna start with. Um, Democrats blaming progressives for their losses. If you look at every single candidate who endorsed Medicare for all, they won. And that's not just AOC. That's not just Mark Pocan. That isn't just is, uh, Premier uh, Diapol. Specifically for, for Congress, though. We, we don't want to, you know, specifically people have endorsed Medicare for all who are running for seats in Congress. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Sorry, that's what I meant. Um, <laughs> Good. But, um, yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So uh, all of them were successful in their reelection. Um, this also includes swing districts in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I believe that's the eighth district of Pennsylvania. Um, uh, a Democrat in a moderate district uh, was pro Medicare for all, went on Fox News, supportive of Medicare for all, and then went on to win his district. Um, so I would not suggest that progressive politics moves people away from the Democratic Party. Another good example of this is in Florida. Florida voted by a margin of like 60 to 40 percent for the for the increase of the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Donald Trump won that state by 3 percent. How is that possible? How is it possible for a guy who actually said in 2015, 2016, that wages were too high in the United States to win a state 
that just passed a $15 minimum wage. That is the uh, establishment of the Democratic Party's fault for not tying itself to a policy that was not only popular, but benefited the working class. And that is a, uh, uh, a lesson that they need to learn. Um, so that's my question about progressives. I would not suggest that. And on another note, a lot of uh, Democrats are saying um, that defund the police hurt the Democratic Party movement, that that phrasing hurt them overall. Um, if you look at the registration rates of people being registered to vote uh, throughout the summer, there was a massive spike specifically in, in there was a massive spike in Democratic Party registration, specifically because of the Black Lives Matter movement. This is a this was a, a, a research done by Target Smart. That actually increased the Democratic Party's uh, registration rate over Republicans in states like Virginia. So this is Abigail Spanberger. She's the one who was on the phone call that is, is making headlines all over the place because she's the one uh, saying that it's AOC's people's fault or whatever. Um, her state was negative in the red compared to Republican registration to Democratic registration. Only after the Black Lives Matter movement and the defund the police movement did Virginia register more Democrats than Republicans. So that's something where the base was mobilized. The base was ready to vote for you. So how, you know, these people are riding our backs to power and then spitting on our faces the second the door gets shut on us. That's completely, that's completely ridiculous. So then Joe Biden winning the nomination. Joe Biden won the nomina nomination uh, for the Democratic primary. There's no doubt about it. Um, however, he did not win the ideological battle of the Democratic Party. He won because he was the most electable, whatever that means. He was the one who was perceived as the most comprehensive, bipartisan guy who was going to get things done. But if you go to Maine, and the exit polls were very clear, 70% said they wanted, uh, I think it's 70% of Maine voters said they wanted uh, a... Uh, Elimination of private health insurance, something around there. It's 70 percent or it was 40 percent said they wanted a elimination of private insurance and 30 percent wanted they said they wanted a mix. But it's around that number. Um, they um, but they voted for Joe Biden. So what that tells me is that the voters have an ideological um, lenient. Uh, they ideologically lean towards the left, but they're afraid to do it because they're afraid they wouldn't win the general. And there's an amazing moment in Fo on the Fox News election night coverage when Jesse Waters is talking about how it's crazy that Joe Biden is whatever. And uh, he's like, Joe Biden's such a radical, whatever. And then on the right side of his screen, it says uh, uh, it's like popularity of a government health care program. And if you add up the ones who said Medicare for all and public option, it's 80 percent. So th there's an amazing ideological consensus to take certain things out of the capitalist market system and place them into a democratic control type system. And uh, erasing that from history is a form of gaslighting that the Democratic Party is going to play on us for the next four years. So now with Joe Biden in power, we're not going to sit down and we're not just going to wait our turn for two years from now and hopefully elect more progressives. Now is the time to push. They talked a big talk. He talked about shutting down private prisons. He talked about doing a public option. He talked about a $2 trillion uh, energy infrastructure program. If those things don't happen, you should obviously expect major pushback from the base who brought you to power. Yeah, and I think to add one more thing about elections, personally, the way I think about them is they're not so much an ideological battle as they are a turnout battle. It's a contest of who can call the most people, who can knock on the most doors, obviously, like, you know, not in COVID times, uh, hopefully, um, who can, you know, reach the most people, right? 
because the base is there. Like people say that the country is polarizing. And then when, when politicians run, they reach towards the middle when the middle is obviously not going to be there very soon if the country is polarizing, right? Um, so if you want to build power, you should hit your base and hit your base hard uh, because we know that these policies like Medicare for all, they're, they're popular, uh, they win votes. Um, you just have to convince people that you're actually going to do it and that you're worth turning out to vote for because voting is, is really hard in this country. Um, and so you have to convince people that you're worth it. Now, uh, you asked one more question about working within the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, there is major divide with this in the, in the, in the Democratic Socialist community. Um, there's a bunch of people who have different opinions. Uh, Vivian, I, I hope you share yours after, but I am definitely in favor of working within the Democratic Party because I do think it can be captured. And I think AOC's success, Cori Bush's success, Jamal Bowman's success, um, uh, Rashida Tlaib's success, these people are showing a path that we can demand certain things from this uh, capitalist party that uh, they are nervous to um, give us. And I, I think it's, it's very um, exciting that we have uh, some type of representation for progressivism. And if Democratic Party is the way to get through, then that's what I'm going to use. You know, personally, I don't think we should leave any option on the table, but I think it is heavily dependent on where you are in the country. And I do think that eventually um, we do need a break out of this two-party system where both parties are really capitalist parties, you know, parties of, of the bourgeoisie, right? Um, I think, you know, personally, I worked on a city council campaign over the summer. There was a free article about it a while ago um, that was for a Green Party candidate. And we came very close to winning um, about, I think, 40,000 people, 40 to 50,000 people voted in our district. Uh, and we were about three or 4,000 votes behind in the final vote tally. That's, that's very close, especially for a Green Party candidate, not someone from the Democratic Party, even though we were endorsed by, you know, prominent Democratic politicians. Um, so it is definitely possible to win uh, without a Democratic candidate. Um, it really just depends on, on where you are and, you know, like the, the, the material conditions right, of, of where and when uh, you happen to be campaigning. Great, thank you. Um, so I have noticed you guys have discussed a lot about working, um, trying to help the working class and people like that, but many critics of the DSA have said that this is a movement that's, it's too focused towards the like majority white educated individuals in the professional middle class, and it's a little bit alienated from the actual working class. So um, do you guys have a response to these critiques that some people have? To, to clarify, we wanna suggest that that's not necessarily the membership of the DSA, but that there is an appeal, you know, there is a sense that which, you know, many working people, you know, in the general primaries in the general election specifically um, ended up turning out for you know of working class actually um, traditional working class um, you could say older working class perhaps um, it turned out for Joe Biden you know maybe you know you could say electability reasons but um, you know there is this idea that many 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 uh, people within DSA and people within the socialist movement in America at large are within kind of a bubble in the sense that they you know, are maybe detached from that older working class, you know, who might might swing their vote from Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump, might swing their vote from Bernie Sanders to Joe Biden. So do you guys think that there is sort of, um, you know, a problem of reach 
there that hasn't been met? Or do you think that there is, you know, what do you think the challenges are kind of to clarify? Reaching no, I, I do think that I do. Th I think that's a serious challenge. Um, I think as college students, um, yes, classes are difficult, but we have a lot of time on our hands and we're, we're very lucky to have a lot of time to read and think about this kind of stuff. But uh, the working class community doesn't really get, uh, get a lot of time to think about politics. It's like it's a very it's it's a very deep privilege that we all have to acknowledge that we get to sit around and talk about politics um, for, you know, however, however long as we get to, because a lot of people don't get that opportunity. And that's almost that's a that, that that's a condemnation of the capitalist system, right? Because it gets everyone working so so hard and so many hours that um, when they come home, it's like it's difficult for them to mobilize themselves and organize themselves. And uh, it is it, it's it's our job as democratic socialists to um, expand our outreach and uh, organize our messaging to make it more appealing. And um, I think it's getting there. I really do. Um, I think the labor movement and uh, the union movements of the 60s and 70s and even way before that um, were highly successful in bringing about this type of like solidarity message and uh, you know um, the, the unionization of America um, in the 30s with FDR and the New Deal brought about this type of solidarity that I think we can recapture in the United States. But it's, it's very important to recognize that a vast majority of the working class voted for Donald Trump, not just Joe Biden, but also Donald Trump. And uh, Donald Trump received more votes than Obama did in 2008. There is a massive sect of this country that views Donald Trump as a working class champion. I don't know how he was able to get that messaging for himself. It will never make sense to me. But this is uh, the reality of uh, American politics right now. And I think a lot of it has to do with neoliberal institutions telling us, Margaret Thatcher said famously, that we don't, there is no such thing as society. There is just the individual. So everyone is very scared of thinking as a global collective community fighting together. And that's been uh, rooted in us um, throughout our education. And I think that's something that we need to break through. But I also think America right now is very divided on class. I'm sorry, the opposite, divided on culture. And I think that what the socialist community needs to do is re reorientate American politics into a class dynamic that unites everyone, no matter their, um, their cultural preferences, that we have a uh, common enemy, a common fight, a common good that can be reached if we unite it together and fall back against an incredibly uh, shrinking and um, exclusive power structure that keeps ordinary Americans out of, uh, the, out of the conversation. And I think that messaging can be extremely effective to working class community across the country. It just needs to get out there more. And I don't think the media is doing a very good job, but yeah. Yeah, and notably Fred Hampton, who uh, was a Black Panther, uh, you know, back in their heyday before, you know, the CIA killed Fred Hampton and a lot of other uh, leaders in the Black Panther Party. Uh, he was famous for actually going out to, you know, white, like, arguably like racist uh, working class individuals and recruiting them to radical politics, right? Yeah. Um, he would like sit down with people with like Confederate flags in their rooms uh, at the bar, you know, and by the end of the conversation, they'd be like, yeah, I also hate the capitalists. And uh, there's a famous quote from him that says, uh, we hate the oppressor, whether he's black, white, red or yellow, right? And I think um, this is really like 
what separates like socialist politics from mainstream American politics, right? This focus on we all have a united interest in, you know, taking power away from the capitalist class um, and, you know, bringing more of, you know, our control, you know, as people who aren't, aren't capitalists into like everyday life. Uh, and I think that's something that can unite um, people of all different kinds of races, religions, gender identities, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, a slogan that DSA has been pushing pretty heavily in our, uh, we have a, a, a recruitment drive going on right now because our goal is to get to 100,000 members. Um, and right now we're making pretty good progress, I think. Uh, but a slogan that we've been pushing is for the many, not the money, right? And the many includes, you know, all sorts of different kinds of people, um, all different kinds of, of working class people, you know, whether you're a doctor or a fast food worker, or, you know, if you work at BU, you know, cleaning the laundry machines. Um, and so I think definitely it, it is a challenge to build that sort of coalition because, you know, we're so fragmented um, and distracted every day with, you know, work and all the noise that like the media uh, makes. Um, but I think it's necessary and it, I think it is going to happen. Yeah, and I think as students, right, our goal right now is to um, show our, so like I said before, the capitalist institutions ruin our creativity so terribly and don't let us uh, explore the opportunity for a better future. Now, all of us are sitting together here over the computer and, um, you know, socialism is no longer a dirty word to this new generation of people. And uh, the more years that go by, the less of a dirty word it's gonna become because more conversations like this are happening across the country. And um, I'm very hopeful for the future because of that reason. All right. Um, so we're just, we just wanna kind of wrap it up with one you know, more question, more sort of let you guys uh, kind of talk about, you know, we've talked really broad politics and broad, um, but we kind of wanna localize it towards BU because, you know, we're ultimately BU students, um, you know, they're again, kind of going to the mild critique or potential, you know, difficulty we have. Many BU students are, you know, um, you could say rich kids or you could say, you know, um, why rich kids, you know, you know, there's a lot of white people who go to BU. There's a lot of, you know, um, you know, intersecting things that, you know, might contradict something like socialism that says, you know, that in popular culture is perceived as, you know, um, being sort of against, you know, the idea of like, um, not rich people, no, I, I'm phrasing this really <laughs> uh, terribly, but the, the idea, I just want to more kind of ask you guys, why do you think BU is a good place for students to join the YDSA? Um, are the conditions here, you know, uh, necessary that we need a DSA? And I kind of want to just let you guys finish off, uh, you know, uh, presenting yourselves and the club uh, overall. Yeah, so I, I think one of the one of the things that the DSA wants to do right now, and I think the laundry campaign is a great example of this, is we kind of want to show what democratic socialists um, kind of do uh, when fighting institutional power and uh, how they would act inside of like Congress. So something that AOC and Bernie Sanders do every day is they look at the budget, they look how the way the United States is spending money and they see the massive military spending, they see the massive corporate welfare give raise, they see the massive tax cuts for the rich, and they go, how could we better, it's outrageous, we can better utilize this money to push for a more equitable and uh, decent 
society here at home. So when we look at the Boston University budget and we see things that we think are wasteful and we see things that um, do not promote an equitable situate, uh, an equitable distribution or a, uh, a, a, or like economic justice here on campus, we're gonna fight back against that. And uh, through uh, collective uh, organization, through mobilization, through uh, these conversations that we have every day, um, we can have a microcosm of what people will expect from democratic socialists here in the United States in the future. And I think the Free Laundry for All campaign is an awesome example of that. And uh, when it is successful, I think that uh, I, I think that it would have turned a lot of people uh, towards socialism and to democratic socialism in the United States, and they never would have thought that they would ever do that. All right, that's um, great to hear. Uh, I look forward to having more of these conversations. Hopefully, in the future, we've had a lovely conversation here today. Um, I just want to thank you guys, um, Vivian and uh, Anthony, um, and yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to say, Holly, or any closing remarks? Or... Yeah, um, so one thing that, you know, we've noticed is that everyone who goes to BU, whether you're here on, like, work-study or you're here on your parents' time, like, we're all, we're all paying tuition in some form or another, right? And we all want that tuition to go towards things that, you know, benefit the students and the people who work in the Boston community, uh, especially at BU. Uh, and we've noticed that a lot of the, uh, the approaches that BU has taken towards uh, resolving the COVID-19 crisis have not been, you know, uh, good for the students or the faculty or any of the community at BU. Um, and so we will be live tweeting the last um, Back to BU 2021 uh, panel uh, tomorrow at 9 a.m. on our Twitter. Uh, it's at uh, YDSA at BU, I believe is the, is the handle. So if you'd like updates on the panel, you can uh, follow us. We'll be posting the Zoom link when it starts. You can call in. Uh, hopefully, you know they'll have the Q and A feature on, so they can take questions. Um, so, you know, if you're also, you know, a little, you know, upset that BU has not really been uh, prioritizing the things that they should have in responding to COVID, uh, log on, ask them, ask them questions. You know, the worst thing that they'll do is not answer them, which you know sometimes they do that, but we we keep fighting anyway. For sure. All right, that's great to hear, and. Um... Yeah, sorry, uh, Holly, Holly, you wanted to wrap, any, wrap it up? I was just gonna say thank you for joining us and um, just telling us about your organization. We really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, oh, of course. Yeah, we hope to maybe do it again sometime in the future. So it'll sure. be, yeah, good time. Hopefully not over Zoom, but you know. Yeah, Hopefully not over Zoom, in, yeah. Person, in person, you know, podcasts and, um, you know, sorry, in person, yeah, in person podcasts and discussions and all those things we're hoping to get up and I mean, who knows when, hopefully a vaccine will be out soon. Hopefully we can you know, get rid of this, uh, yeah. this crisis and move on to the other crises that we're facing as a nation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, great having you guys. And this is the political. Thank you.